write from your heart and write what you truly want to write, not what you think is going to sell, because whether you make money or not, or get traditionally published or not, whatever your goals are, the most important thing is that you get joy from this. Welcome to Read, Write, Repeat podcast, a podcast where a writer and a bookseller talk bookselling, publishing, writing, reading, and all manner of bookish topics. I am Kelsey, an author working toward publishing my debut novel. Keisha, our book nerd extraordinaire, cannot be here today. She is working, but in her stead, I have the, the fabulous guest author, Grace Mattioli. Thank you, Kelsey. It's an honor to be here. It's so great to have you, and I just am so, so excited to chat with you about all the different topics we've been kind of discussing digitally and um, about your books and your writing. So maybe start just by telling us a little bit about yourself as a, as a, a reader and a writer. Okay. Well, um, I started writing creatively when I was a child, and I wrote stories One in particular that is really significant to me now was called The Magic Pen, and it was a story of a young girl that wrote with this pen, and when she'd write with this particular pen, The Magic Pen, stories would come to her and just flow through her. And the reason it's so significant to me is because um, now in my life, when I write, oftentimes, I feel as though I'm having this kind of divine energy flowing through me um, so that my characters do things that surprise me or they make decisions I didn't know about or anticipate or a line of great dialogue or description will come to me. And so I think about the story I wrote as a child called The Magic Pen. And um, after writing stories for a while. I studied English literature in college, which was really influential upon me and just really made an impact on me. And uh, I started writing poetry in my 20s and about the last eight years started really uh, writing seriously. In terms of, uh, I wrote and uh, published two novels and a small book of short stories and a little pamphlet I'll talk about later as a, as a guide for indie authors. Also, in terms of my reading, I love reading authors that in areas where I, I feel that I have shortcomings. So I feel that my shortcoming is description. And so I read a lot of authors that where I think their description is their their masters. Well, Flannery O'Connor is one. Oh, I love um, Flannery She's O'Connor. a master of description in my book. So... <laughs> or in my eyes, I'm sorry. I read those sorts of authors that maybe my, my writing and, and storytelling is, is dissimilar from theirs, but I'm writing more, I'm reading, I'm sorry, more as a writer than a reader. So I'm reading to really hone my own skills as a writer. I love that. And I absolutely love Flannery O'Connor. She's one of my favorites. <laughs> great? Yeah. She's so fabulous. I mean, she's the best description. You know, if I want to study how to write great description, I just read her. 
<laughs> right. He's so amazing. Right. Uh, um, so it sounds like you write across a ton of different genres. Uh, I love having another poet in the house. Do you abandon <laughs> Thank your- you. I haven't written poetry in years. I write mostly uh, novels and short stories. And I, I love storytelling. I love the whole idea of a story because I just, I feel that that's something human beings do. We tell ourselves stories all day long, even in, and when we're sleeping, not in our waking life, but dreams are an attempt to uh, make stories out of our, from our subconscious mind, if that makes any sense. I'm really infatuated with the whole story idea. So whether that's short stories or novels, um, and I only write in the genre of, I guess it would be called upmarket fiction. So it's it's like literary fiction or well-written fiction, but it's it's I attempt to appeal to a wide audience. Whereas I I feel that literary fiction is a little more confined in that way. So um, upmarket is I'm told between somewhere between a literary and commercial fiction. Awesome. What about, so you have so many great tips and I love that, um, <laughs> that they're really focused for indie authors, but I think for every author, right? Uh, we can all benefit from a bunch of this stuff, especially now as the lines between the two are getting blurred more and more. Yes. You know, so many authors, even if they're traditionally published are ending up responsible for their own marketing and their own exactly social media and everything else. So, mm-hmm. um, I think the biggest one, and this is one I struggle with too, having a full-time job on top of trying mm-hmm. to write and run the podcast and all that stuff is that balancing writing with a busy life. So what are some of your tips and tricks for that? Well, my biggest tip is to be disciplined and to not wait for the inspiration to strike, to rather to sit down, make a point of sitting down every day and I word count, which is something that a lot of people are against, but it's something that worked really well for me. And granted, I end up throwing out a lot of my words and revising and redoing, but what I came up with, now I'm working part-time, but when I was working full-time was 400 words a day. And I actually still stick with that as even having more time on my hands. Although working part-time, I have to say, I think, I feel like I have less time on my hands (laughs) because I found so many other things, you know, that I'm into now. Um, I, I garden, I make jewelry and, and perfume and I sell them in stores. And so I have a lot of like little hobbies also that I pursue actively. But anyway, sorry, getting back to the writing thing. <laughs> I feel that I really need to just be disciplined. And when I made that decision to start getting out a certain number of words per day, that's when I really started accomplishing, finishing my novels and my short stories, you know, just accomplishing, going from start to finish. This novel has been really tricky for me because I've struggled with the the structure of it and I've spent a lot of time on that. But with my first two novels where I was more, I was more decided about how I was going to do it, the structure, how they were, the outline and so on. I was able to write the two of them in about two years while working full-time, just because I made that decision to really be disciplined about how 
many words I was writing per day. The other thing that's really helpful, and I talk about this in this little pamphlet, I have Amazon and other online booksellers, it's called Tell the World Your Story, is making an outline, but a loose outline, so to allow for organic growth of your story. Reading writers that inspire you and that you emulate. I have so many tips, but again, a lot of them are in this, in this book and in this little pamphlet online. Awesome. And we'll make sure we have a link to that in the show notes, listeners, if you want to go check that out. You also worked at, uh, for the San Francisco Public Library for a while? That- for 16 years. Wow. And that, how did that impact you as a writer and as a reader? Well, what I was primarily doing there was writing, um, I'm sorry, I was in charge of the fiction collection, very large fiction collection at the main public library at San Francisco Public. So I got to do a lot of reader's advisory and talk to patrons about what we call appeal factors. So what, what, why does somebody read a certain work of fiction or why do they like a certain author? What, what appeals to them? There's a real joy in that and in knowing that for me, really individualizing readers and knowing offhand that, hey, not everybody, not every reader is going to like what I'm writing and that's okay. So that was one thing I learned. The other thing I learned as a selector, um, so I selected books for the 27 branch system in the area of fiction on top of being a public services librarian or a reference librarian. I saw a lot firsthand how the traditional publishing world is really having a tough time now. And I would see on the particular database that I use to buy books on, I know in bookstores you use Baker and Taylor. There's something (laughs) escaping me now. The database that we use in library world, I would see a lot of times, oh, you know, publisher out of business or publisher can't be found, something like that. So I saw a lot of um, what I thought of as maybe the publishing world not adapting so much or not just, I don't know what, what's going on. A lot of times I would see a lot of not such great quality stuff coming out traditionally published, being traditionally published. So my theory is that in the traditional publishing world, there's much more of a preoccupation with the sellability of something than the quality. People are looking for what they think is going to sell, and they're not always correct in their assumptions. And I also saw a lot of writers attempting to what I thought was like getting on the bandwagon yeah. of you know whatever was popular, whatever was trending. So one thing I say in my book and one thing I stick with is write from your heart and write what you truly want to write, not what you think is going to sell, because whether you make money or not, or get traditionally published or not, whatever your goals are, the most important thing is that you get joy from this process. And um, that's something it's hard to, uh, I I struggle with that myself, like, because we're human being, I'm a human being. And so I look outside of myself oftentimes for that validation. But it really has to come from inside. And it really has to be something that you get joy from in your own right. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. 
I absolutely so that love that. My, <laughs> thank you. So the, that is, you know, a big part of what I've learned from my work at SFPL and then seeing even seeing really popular books that were bestsellers. I was collecting fiction a little while ago. So I remember it was during when like a, The Help, for instance, was, you know, a bestseller. And after it's done being a bestseller, um, I had to take off like several copies of The Help and just have them recycle them because um, either you recycle them or you give them a way to a distribution program like for hospitals or uh, nursing homes. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. um, (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about some of that with, with her bookstore too, just the, how many books she just couldn't sell? Yeah. And how many just sit on the shelf. And so that's why I say to, you know, to myself and to writers, I really had a concept of just all the books that, you know, you put your heart into something and you, you know, you want this external validation so badly because again, we're human beings and we live in the world. So it's hard not to, but in the end, you might just end up in the recycle bin. (laughs) So, So it's really important to just be focusing on doing this to your, for yourself. And I'm telling myself this, I have to repeat this to myself because I lose sight of this lesson. And part of what I write, um, part of why I write a big part is it's kind of like therapy to me. And I feel that my books are, they're not self-help, they're fiction books because I love stories and um, I love to tell stories. But I also want to help people to live more, you know, to live fuller lives to live happier lives because I'm a big believer in the importance of happiness. I think that if people are happy in this world, that the world would just be a completely different place. Like I, I feel that the miserable people are all the troublemakers and right. the happy people are, <laughs> are just, you know, are making the world a better place. And so this is my contribution to the world. My books and my stories are really about finding happiness in whatever form that is. And it's, you know, all the components of that. So my first book is about peacemaking and my second book is about living for the day. And this book is about how wealth, true wealth is an internal thing. And we shouldn't look to society for dictating how we need to live. So I'm learning these lessons myself. So when I write them, it helps to instill these lessons it helps to have them more ingrained in my being. I love that. I think that's a wonderful inspiration behind writing. Thank you. Thank you Um, so much. You're welcome. I am so excited to talk to you about your books. Um, So let's talk about this latest one. Um, And you kind of gave us a little bit of an intro into what it's about, but maybe give us a little bit more. What, what, and you're still working on it, right? It's in progress. I, I am. I'm, I'm pretty much finished it. Um, I'm still, I'm revising. I am trying to, the the struggle with this book has been the structure. So this is a story of a woman's life. And it's a story of, as I was saying earlier, it's really about what it takes to be happy in life and how that definition or how that meaning changes throughout our lives. And it focuses, it has the protagonist as Donna Greco, 
who is the matriarch of my first two novels. And I will say this has been written is a prequel to the first two novels, which was um, the first one is Olive Branches Don't Grow on Trees. And the second one is Discovery of an Eagle. The first one was written through the point of view of Sylvia Greco, 23 year old Sylvia Greco. The second one through the point of view of her older brother. And Donna is the matriarch of that family. But it begins when Donna is 13 in 1970 and it ends when she is a grandmother in her early 60s in present day. So it's a little bit tricky in terms of the structure because it's told in first person present tense and I wanted it to be that way so that the reader can grow along with Donna. So it starts with the first chapter being in 1970 when she's 13 and the voice is that of a 13-year-old narrator. The next chapter is told when she's 16. So it's, it matures, you know, and, and so on. So it goes until with each chapter, she's the voice is maturing and changing a little. So I put a lot of work into that, but I do have a fear that readers are not going to understand that this is something that changes that her voice changes with, with each chapter. So I'm trying to think of a way to preface the book with something that will indicate to readers that the voice changes, that they are growing with her. Because when I write it this way, or I tried to rewrite it, I'm sorry, in all past tense to be more of a reflective thing. Like, I don't know if you read the um, Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante, but they're in past tense because it's it's more of a woman reflecting on her reflecting on her story or the movie Titanic it's more of a reflective thing this is told in present tense because it just it feels a lot more charming and it feels just a lot more immediate to the author like I, f I feel that the author can just get a lot closer to the narrator in this way I love that thank you <laughs> thank you <laughs> So yeah, so it is, and it focuses on the relationship she has with her brother. So her brother is a few years older than her when the, and in the beginning of the story, he is 18. He's a senior in high school. He wants to go to art school next year. Her parents don't want him to go. They don't think it's practical. These are first generation Italian, New Jersey, so, which I am from. So it tend to be more conservative in their outlook and tend to think, you know, you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer to, you know, make something out of your life. So they're not that appreciative of the fact that he wants to be an artist. And she eventually, Donna eventually, in the beginning of the story, she thinks, oh yeah, he's a great artist. He should be. And, and that's her childlike sense coming out you know, the imagination and, and music and art. And towards the end of the first chapter, because the, you know, the first chapter is pretty much the setup. She, her mother says to her, you know, I'm not so keen on the idea of my son being a starving artist. And Donna starts to think more pragmatically and that, you know, maybe that's not such a great thing for him. So she starts to kind of steer him even though she's younger than him in this more pragmatic way. And 
she decides pretty much um, in the second chapter that happiness is contingent upon having a successful career, a spouse, children, a nice house, all of the things that, again, society dictates that you need in order to be happy. And she goes about achieving these things in, his, in her life, whereas Vincent pretty much stays the same. I don't want to give away the story, though. <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything else, but basically she is the one, she is the protagonist because she's the one that grows and changes through this story and really the meaning of, of happiness and what it takes to live a happy life and to be true to yourself in that path really changes for her. I love it. Okay. What inspired it? What inspired it was a story within itself. So my brother, Vincent, it's actually based on my brother's life who or the uh, Vincent in the story is my brother, Vincent, who passed away years ago, about 15 years ago, when he did, and he led a pretty unconventional life. He was a Renaissance man. He never had a lot of money. He didn't have all of the things that society dictates that you need to be happy. And I pretty much struggled with that as his sister, as his younger sister, because I felt that, you know, he, he couldn't possibly be happy because he didn't have a spouse and children and, you know, big house and, you know, this kind of great career. And I thought, you know, gosh, he deserves all those things and he's totally worthy of getting them and blah, blah, blah. I found this sketchbook after he passed away in his apartment of all these really amazing pictures he had drawn of himself throughout his life. And it was this kind of pictorial autobiography of him playing all the various instruments he played and painting houses, doing all the crazy jobs he did, you know, making donuts, studying the stars, being a child, reading, sitting around with his uh, books of Tolkien and his Beatles albums and, um, Kink's albums and, and reading a Thor comic book. Um, so all of these really varied, colorful, bright pictures. And I thought to myself, what pictures am I going to have in the end of my life? Because if we tell ourselves, you know, that's pretty much what he did. He told this story of his life through these pictures. I realized, well, a lot of my guilt was, had dissipated because I realized that, or not guilt, but sad feeling for him. I realized that he did have a happy, full, and rich life. And even though he didn't have a lot of money, he had this internal wealth that came from all of his creative and intellectual pursuits and being a Renaissance man, which again, I, I keep repeating that, but I feel, and I, I have a blog post about it, that we are kind of living in a little bit of a dark ages right now in that with the way the information revolution exploded and coming from a librarian background, I know this sounds crazy to be saying this, but I, I feel and I've seen firsthand that a lot of the information explosion, you know, the, all the technological advances in relatively recent years have made people a little bit, I don't want to say stupid, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that these intellectual pursuits and that, you know, 
sitting down and actually reading a whole book is is not something people do as much anymore. They're more prone to reading a post, <laughs> you know, right. letters and, and literacy has gone downhill a lot. And again, I, I worked in a big, you know, urban public library system where I should have been surrounded with intellectual life, but I, I felt that I wasn't because I, I feel that there is kind of a new dark ages that we're living in right now. So I just feel really passionate. And so finding this sketchbook is, was the real inspiration behind this book because I, I knew that I had to tell the world my brother's story because it so much had an impact on me. It changed how I started living my life and it, it caused me to feel like, you know, well, what pictures am I going to see of myself at the end of my life? And that is the message that I want to get out there for people. Um, without giving too much of this book away, that's that's pretty much the message in it. What what do we need to be true to ourselves and to live a happy life? And again, that's what I feel would make the world a better place because it is the unhappy, miserable people that are creating wars and that are being greedy and that are just making the world a really shitty place. <laughs> so it. if they were happy, you know, happiness is not having a new car. It's not all of those things are really fleeting and they'll make you happy for a few seconds and then you won't be anymore. Absolutely. It's really internal. So that was my inspiration. I love it. Thank you. You picked as your kind of book choice, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, Day of the Locusts. I did. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. We're running just a little low on time, but I think we have time to squeeze that in. The reason I picked this again was because I think he's such a master of description and I'm kind of honestly regretting that a little. <laughs> uh, um, I... I loved it. It was a wild It's a ride. great book, but it, yeah. it is so dark. Again, it, it is really dissimilar to my, my writing is, is pretty heartwarming with these lovable characters. <laughs> <laughs> but I love his, I love his style. And I think he was a genius and Flannery O'Connor actually studied him. Did so she? I didn't know studied that. Studied his work in particular. So that's part of why, yeah, I picked this. Yeah, I absolutely, I loved it. And I thought it was also a great study in fighting against some of the, the normal, if I can get my brain to work here, <laughs> <laughs> fighting against some of the, the normal um, structure choices that you might make or the, you know, the normal constraints that we typically write in. I thought it was a really interesting uh, novel. And I loved the way that you're just kind of taken along for these this wild chain of events that right. you're not really given a full resolution to, but it's just kind of like this cautionary tale mashed into this space. It's a really short novel right. <laughs> for all it's the stuff short. that happens in it. And um, I thought it was great. I, it's beautiful. And I mean, his writing is just, his descriptions are striking, I believe and vivid, you know, it really captures that Los Angeles, you know, in terms of satirizing LA, it's, it's really amazing. I just, I have lots of areas that I highlighted here, you know, that in terms of how he paints pictures with his words, just the way the ending, the anticlimactic ending yeah. and just, 
so on. Just, it's brilliant. Really great. Okay. Well, would you like to share a little bit of your work with us? I would love to. This is the opening chapter of my new novel, A Very Wealthy Poor Man. <clears throat> the golden garden bird of peace are the words painted on the wall in Vincent's room. I thought dad would have painted over them by now because he can't stand all that hippie crap. Beside the words hang a bunch of paintings he'd made. He paints a lot of trees and mountains and rivers and flowers, and he paints weird stuff that isn't anything, just shapes and all kinds of bright colors. My favorite is this one that looks like a kaleidoscope, and I could stare at it all day, and I don't care that I don't understand it. It has a green and yellow core surrounded by black and white flowers that are inside orange and pink bubbles that are inside yellow and purple circles, and it just goes on and on, no end and no beginning. I go between staring at it and the album cover before me, Let It Be by the Beatles. Vincent sits on the record player, dressed in his usual Levi's t-shirt and Converse high tops, bent toward the revolving album, listening intently, his head of black curly hair moving back and forth, his right foot tapping the hardwood floor, keeping rhythm to the Fab Four. Finally, he turns his head away and says to me, I can't believe this is it. His face is serious and gloomy, and I don't know what he's talking about, but I pretend that I do because I can't let my cool down, especially around Vincent. It's because of him that I know so much cool music. I'm pretty sure I'm the coolest eighth grade girl in the whole town, possibly in the whole state of New Jersey. I know, I say, equally serious and gloomy. I mean, I just never thought the Beatles would break up. He shakes his head with a look of disappointment. I'm so glad to finally know what he's talking about. So this is their last album then? Well, yeah, he says, like I should have known better. Hey, check this out, Donna. He sounds like an entirely different person, no longer sad and gloomy, but light and happy. He shows me a drawing he made of an old lady smiling. It's a weird, mysterious smile, and she holds, like she holds some great secret. I can't see any reason she has to smile. She has about two teeth and wears a dress with a hole in it. Even worse, half of her body is missing, and the way it's missing is the weirdest thing of all. It looks like there's an invisible door, and the missing half is on the other side of it. Where's the other half of her body, I say. I don't know, he says, grinning. You tell me. Wow. I sit there trying to wrap my head around this while listening to the song playing. Just as I'm about to figure something out, and just as I'm really getting into the song playing, Vincent takes the needle off, turns the album over, and puts the needle on the first song on the other side. Our brother Carmen can't stand when he does that. He scratches his head and looks up at the ceiling with a blank look in his eyes, like he's deep in thought about something or like he's somewhere else in his mind. He looks like that a lot. It's funny because he looks just like our mom with his olive skin, Roman nose, and black curls, but she never looks spaced out like he does. He's the only one of us who got her curly hair. The rest of us have straight hair. Mine is straightened down to the bottom of my back, and I wear it parted down the middle, and I was wearing it that way long before it was a style. Vincent is also taller than the rest of us at over six feet. Dad says he takes after his own dad in stature. I never knew Grandpa Tucci because he died before I was born, and, but I'm told he was called lanky because he was tall and skinny. I'm not short or tall, but somewhere in the boring middle. I'm on the thin side, and I'm tall to have a bottomless pit, and that it'll catch up with me one day. But that doesn't stop me from eating ice cream every day after school. Briar's butter almond is my favorite. 
All six of us have brown hair. Some have dark brown, almost black. Some have medium brown and some have light brown. Dad had red hair when he was young, but none of us got it. He's all Italian like mom, but he had red hair. Crazy, huh? Most of us are olive skin, some lighter, some darker, except dad who's light and freckles in the summer. I tan in the summer and never burn. Even the time I fell asleep on the beach. All of us have dark brown eyes, so dark they're almost black, the kind of deep black that goes on forever. Vincent is leaning toward the stereo, giving the new song pure attention, like there's nothing else in the world as George sings, I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. I wonder if he's trying to figure out what the song is about or how he can play it on his guitar. He's a great guitar player. He can play like any song at all. His acoustic guitar sits in the corner of his room. His room feels small, but it's really big. Every inch is filled with stuff, good stuff, not stupid stuff. His paintings and drawings cover the walls. A bunch of leather-bound cases of albums colored red and black and bone sit on the floor between a stereo and a desk made of yellowish-brown wood with piles of books and sketchbooks on top. Comic books, pens, paintbrushes scattered are, are scattered on the floor. A couch, it's also a bed, mustard-colored with matching pillows, sits against the wall. It's the smallest room in our house, but it feels like the biggest. I could spend hours just sitting in his room and never get bored. He's so lucky to have his own room. I share a room with my younger sister, Nancy, and she insists on having as much pink as possible in our room, and it looks like it belongs to a little girl. And now she's starting some doll collection with faces that really creep me out. And she keeps pushing over my beloved books to make room for her dolls. A doll named Lucinda with blonde hair and a blue satin dress is shoved up against two of my favorites, Animal Farm and To Kill a Mockingbird. I spend as, much, as little time as possible in my room, and at this point, I'm only in there to dress and sleep. Check this out, Donna, Vincent says, coming out of his music listening trance. He takes a skinny metal whistle out of a plastic case. Got it at the music store in town. Neat, some kind of flute, I say. Penny whistle, he says, with a big smile that stretches from one side of his face to the other, or sometimes called a tin whistle. I wish I could play an instrument, I say, just one. Mom had me learn ballet instead of learning an instrument because she said I had a dancer's body. I liked it all right, but gave it up last year when my teacher put me on to in toe shoes and they hurt like hell. Have it, he says. Really? Sure. He starts looking in one of his desk drawers for something. Thanks, Vincent. He doesn't respond. He's still busy looking for something. I look at the tin instrument, wondering how I'll learn to play the thing. Just then, he pokes his head up and gives me a songbook for it. I tell him thank you and flip through the pages to see a lot of lines with dots and music symbols and letters and circles, some colored in and some just hollow. It's all new territory for me, but I know I can learn it, and there's no telling where I can go from there. I could get really good and play Jethro Tull, I could play on the street for change. I could play with a group of people and we could perform for audiences. I could. Dinner's ready, mom calls out, bringing me back to where I am. I don't care that my fantasy is interrupted. I'm just so happy dinner's ready because I'm starving. All I ate all day was a bowl of cereal and a peanut butter sandwich. Vincent's always up for eating too. 
He's probably the biggest eater in the family. I once saw him eat four sausage and pepper sandwiches in one sitting. I can tell he's especially hungry because he's walking faster than he usually does. Even when he walks fast, he looks cool. He walks with a bounce in his step, his head bopping back and forth like he's keeping beat to a song that only he can hear. I tried to walk like him once, but I ended up looking like some really strange, uncoordinated monkey. I ended up looking really strange, like some kind of uncoordinated monkey. I walk like dad, who walks fast and forward leaning, like he's always running late for something. Thank you so much for listening to that. That's a small intro from my new novel, A Very Wealthy Poor Man. I love it. I absolutely love it. Thank you Thank so much you. for sharing. Thank you so much, me. Kelsey. You're so kind. And it was a pleasure to have you on the show. It was such a pleasure. And I just wanted to add that if anyone's interested in signing up for my newsletter, my website, gracemattioli.com, you can get a free ebook version of my novel, Discovery of an Eagle. And also I'll be announcing when this new novel will be released. Awesome. We'll make sure we have the link in the show notes as well, listeners, so you can grab it there. Thank you so much, Kelsey. I greatly appreciate being here. I'm so honored. I'm a big fan of your show and I really appreciate it. So thanks again. It was a blast chatting with you and listeners. Don't forget to check out all the goodies in the show notes and we hope that you have a wonderful day. Happy reading and happy writing. Dun, 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 <laughs> Sorry. I'm just gonna randomly throw that into every episode now. Like in a random part. Scare the Jesus out of our listeners whenever Uh. they do it. That brings us to the end of yet another read, write, repeat episode. We have to give a big shout out to our producer, Bigly Human Productions, for making us sound so great, and a huge thanks to Mike Friedrich for our intro music. You can find links to all of these lovely people in our show notes. Listeners, Thanks so much for giving us your time. We'd love to hear from you and doing so enters you in our giveaway. We put together a quarterly goodie box to show our listeners how much we appreciate them. Interact with us and be entered to win the goodie box. To enter, simply follow us and tag us in a bookish photo or comment on Instagram at read, write, repeat underscore podcast on Twitter at the RWR podcast or Facebook at read, write, repeat pod. Or leave us a comment on our show notes or one of our posts on any of our social media platforms. A winner will be drawn at random at the beginning of November, February, May, and August. If you love us, please be sure to rate us and leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your preferred listening platform so that others can find us. If anything sparked an idea for you or you have thoughts about what we should discuss next, let us know. You can find ways to connect with us on our website, readwriterepeatpod.com. Thanks for listening, you guys. Have a wonderful day.